Vice Provost, colleagues and friends, there are too many um, here to name you, but I thank you all for coming. And I thank the faculty, and in particular Tessa Ricketts, for organizing this event. And I thank Sonia van Prague and Matthew Jones for their technological assistance in getting this lecture and the PowerPoint in particular running. For an academic, the greatest recognition is former students returning to lectures. And there are many of you here, including several former PhD students, Kate Ferris all the way from St. Andrews, Dani Lacquer from Newcastle, my first ever PhD student, Nico Pizzolato. There are many current students, apparently, who, who apparently didn't get enough of me yet. <clears throat> and there are, of course, many friends and colleagues from other London universities and um, departments outside London, without whom my work in these 18 years would have been so much poorer. And even the archers, you might be surprised to hear, sent a delegation to UCL. Hello, Birdwatcher. Um, I would also like to extend um, my thanks to those of you who are here despite taking part um, in the strike today. Um, I often disagree with the strategy of our union, but it's a real honor to see the president of the union, Simon Renton, here. Thank you very much, Simon. Stephen, thank you very much for this very kind introduction. For words too generous to reflect upon a colleague who perhaps culturally and intellectually never quite fitted into your department. But this is part of UCL's story, being composed of people who don't fit in, who speak funny accents, and who work across disciplines. My topic tonight shall be an example of a transnational dialogue across disciplines. As most of you will have guessed from the title of my lecture, I'm going to speak about Verdi's 1859 opera, Un Ballo in Mascara. But I will do so as a historian, not as a musicologist. I shall thank Professor Parker for encouraging me to take a closer look at Umballo. It seemed an appropriate, inappropriate, not inappropriate, choice. After Humperdinck's Hänsel and Gretel, compulsory repertoire for every German child, Umballo was the first opera I ever saw more than 30 years ago, and tonight I return to this very early operatic experience. During my 18 years at UCL, I have been fortunate enough to work under heads of departments who, on the whole, tolerated my cross-disciplinary interests. It all started with John North, who appointed me, although at the time it was almost impossible to reach me. I was living in a valley in Tuscany in a house with no telephone signal and where no postman ever comes close. Lucky me that John didn't give up trying. I didn't expect being contacted by John and was surprised when he offered me some teaching. I had never studied in the UK, knew nothing about its education system and had not attended a single conference in this country. I think in the audience somewhere is Professor Dame Alwyn Houghton, a fellow of UCL and a former PhD student of the great Alfred Cobbin in this department. Before I went for my interview at UCL, I consulted Alwyn on how to behave in such a situation. Axel, throw in one or two jokes, was the advice she gave. The only thing I could offer was Prussian humor, but it must have done the trick. So it's thanks to Owen that I made it. Thank you very much, Owen, for your help. Of my first day at UCL, I mostly remember the kindness of Ms. Raspi. Our daughter Elsa at some point assumed that Nasnin was living in the department. <laughs> Nothing better demonstrates her dedication to UCL. That's the place we were. I was given a mentor, Nicola Miller, whose role in mentoring soon extended into almost every aspect of my at times chaotic life. A friend, she also became my closest colleague in teaching and in research. That's something very special. 
I didn't know a single soul in London, but within weeks I started spending countless evenings at the homes of my new colleagues who soon became close friends, Chris in Islington, Amelie and Patrick in Austin Road. The Honorable Patrick Trawley was my predecessor at UCL. When he retired, he left an intellectual void which I will never be able to fill. But after a while, I became a mentor myself. And then the mentee famously moved in next door. And I better stop there. <laughs> my first lecture I gave in this room, an experience as daunting then as it is today. The course was a joint venture with CIS, then still a separate institution. For me, CIS is still one of the finest things about UCL. The academic I am today, I am thanks to UCL. I had read, Gram I had read Gramsci and Benjamin, but trying them out on my students was a different matter. How to teach, I learned from my students and my colleagues. Not everything, though, is rosy at UCL. Working conditions often revoke childhood memories of East Germany, by which I don't mean to offend the GDR. <laughs> the, laborat the laboratories in the history department, heating or the lack thereof, a decrepit computer system, Kafkaesque bureaucracies. Meanwhile, encouragement for initiatives often came from the very top. Vice Provost Wharton's um, enthusiasm for the European doctorate, sometimes against indifference in my own department, hello Michael, thank you, or from David Price, a geologist by training, but when Avi and I told him that we needed, to that, that we needed money to perform Jean-Jacques Rousseau's opera Le Devin du Village at UCL in this lecture theater, he simply understood. I'm honored, David, that you kindly agreed to chair procedures tonight. Turning my passion for the politics of culture into an academic interest dates back to the time when I met Reinhard Kanonier in Florence, today rector of the University of the Arts in Linz in Austria. He joined us for this lecture, and what I'm going to say has a lot to do with our friendship. That I ever managed to write this lecture, for that you have to thank Lenka, my wife, whom I met at UCL and who luckily shares my interest in music. So much of our work we can only accomplish because partners are prepared to step in and give us support. I'm grateful for that, and I hope UCL is too.
February 1859, Giuseppe Verdi's opera, Umballo in Mascara, was premiered at the Apollo Theater in Rome. A melodrama in three acts, the opera is set in 17th century New England and deals with the love affair between the governor of Boston, Ricardo, and Amelia, the wife of his secretary and intimate friend, Renato. Although the relationship was never consummated, when Renato discovers the affair, he joins a group of cons conspirators and assassinates the governor at a masked ball. There are three points which I would like you to take home from this lecture. First, although the original source for Verdi's libretto was concerned with the regicide in late 18th century Sweden, it was by no means an accident that Verdi moved the plot across the Atlantic it would be misleading to present this fact as merely the consequence of vicious censors acting against Verdi's revolutionary and patriotic intentions. Second, Italians' engagement with America was a way of coming to terms with their own experience of modernity, with rapid societal change during the final stages of their risorgimento. Imagining the new world opened up a horizon of expectations at the very moment, the peninsula's old state system was to disappear forever. Umballo plays, um, plays a part in this story. Historians often reduce the Italian image of America to an irresistible narrative of social mobility, political equality, and material prosperity. My own research has challenged such oversimplified accounts. Verdi's remarkably dark image of the new world is representative of Italians' critical engagement with American modernity. Meanwhile, Italians frequently discussed America on a more abstract level, not as a specific country or political model, but as a reference to the uncertainty of the future, as an exploration of human relationships in a hypothetical modernity. Joseph Haydn wrote an opera about the people on the moon, understood as an abstract reference to life in the new world. Italy's America was a bit like these people on the moon. As the French philosopher Michel de Certeau has suggested, the new world served as a white canvas on which to project your own expectation of the future, as utopia or as dystopia. My third point. Members of the historical profession often take the staging of historical plots too serious. Reading plays and libretti too much a la lettre, as if the aesthetic concept of opera or theater could be reduced to a description of the past. That's not what theater is about. If you're interested in the Babylonian Empire, you should read Amelie's History of the Ancient Near East, but don't follow a production of Verdi's Nabucco. <laughs> Opera doesn't do history. Instead, it's a medium to analyze the human self and the complexities of interpersonal relations. Music allows us to do that. For the composer, the past is merely a stage set. This is not to say that opera is bare of historical interest. What Verdi says about colonial America is largely insignificant. But the fact that he chooses to set a plot in the new world at the very moment when Italians dramatically enter a new stage in their own history, offers us important keys to the Italian experience of modernity. In order to illustrate the relative insignificance of the historical plot, I will use in this lecture images from a variety of modern productions of Umballo, underlining the relative autonomy of the work of art once it leaves the hands of the composer. The video clips alter between a Met production with Pavarotti and a production of the Teatro Real Madrid. 
Let me then come to my reading of Umbalo in Maschera. Does it matter that Verdi sets his opera in America? Like any successful opera or ballet, Umbalo was seen by huge numbers of Italians. Verdi's work had an excellent impact factor. While even the most popular American set novels by James Fenimore Cooper or Harriet Beecher Stowe rarely reached 10,000 Italian readers, a single performance of a popular opera or ballet at one of Italy's bigger theaters was followed by several hundred or up to 3,000 people in the case of the biggest theaters. If in one season the work was scheduled for just 10 evenings, it could reach an audience of several 10,000s, even if it was often the same people seeing the work on successive evenings. In subsequent years, the same work made it back onto the schedule, along with stagings elsewhere in Italy and abroad. What is more, premieres were discussed in most newspapers as well as in the musical press. New performances generated additional articles. Piano reductions and sheet music with popular extracts were widely available in the case of Umballo as early as 1859, at a time when keyboard instruments became affordable for the wider middle classes. Brass bands brought the most popular tunes into the piazza, and even barrel organ players, an early version of our MP3 format, picked up tunes from local opera houses. <coughs> Despite old arguments about theater as elite culture, opera in Italy had a far more important impact on the spread of ideas than literature. Within months of the premiere, 10,000s of Italians engaged with Umballo in one or the other way. Therefore, Verdi's American opera serves as a perfect example for Italy's cultural imagination surrounding life in the new world. To political observers, as well as to followers of European opera and literature, the plot of Umballo sounded familiar. Verdi and his librettist borrowed it from the most famous playwright at the time, the Frenchman Eugène Scribe, who was specialized in exploring historical plots. For several decades, he had provided a string of intriguing libretti to Europe's most successful opera composers and made, a, and made serious money, which you can see there in the bags. <laughs> But the historical setting of Scribe's play was different from Verdi's plot. In 1792, the Swedish king Gustav III had been assassinated at a masked ball, a scandal which inspired Scribe to a play which soon became enormously successful. Scribe was not really interested in the affair's political background, inventing instead a juicy story about a love affair between the king and his secretary's wife, which she presented as the cause for Gustav's otherwise rather obscure assassination. Scribe's play was soon set to music, first as a grand opera by Aubert in 1833, and then by Vincenzo Gabussi, and again in 1843 by Mercadante, who shifted the plot from 18th century Sweden to 16th century Scotland. This kind of shift was utterly common at the time. Aubert's and Mercadante's operas were popular and remained in the repertoire for several decades. Numerous adaptations of Scribe's play toured the European theaters well into the 1850s. When Verdi, several decades later, considered Scribe's play as material for a new opera, it was already an old hat. Verdi moved the plot across the Atlantic. America was what interested Italians at the time. Also, the context of setting libretto featuring regicide had suddenly changed. In 1858, the Italian nationalist Felice Orsini had attempted to assassinate the French Emperor Napoleon III on his way to the Opera House. Although Emperor and Empress survived, several bystanders were killed and many wounded. The motive? Orsini held the French Emperor responsible for delaying the process of Italy's unification. It had been Louis Bonaparte, together with his Foreign Minister Alexis de Tocqueville, who had crushed the Roman Republic of 1849, who re-established papal rule over central Italy. 
There was an important diplomatic dimension to Orsini's failed assassination. Orsini was no isolated hothead. An acquaintance of Italy's future Prime Minister Marco Minghetti and a friend of Giuseppe Mazzini, in 1854 he had been among the guests at the reception of the American Embassy here in London to celebrate the anniversary of George Washington. In short, he was extremely well connected. Orsini's assassination attempt made it almost impossible to present a new opera on regicide. Meanwhile, the event stimulated France's renewed interest in the Risorgimento, leading within months to a French war against Austria with the aim of liberating Lombardy, Italy's so-called Second War of Liberation. Piemont's annexations and the creation of the Kingdom of Italy under the Crown of Savoy followed suit. As a consequence, the premiere of Verdi's new opera coincided exactly with the collapse of the peninsula's old state system and the formation of the Italian nation-state. Verdi had to write an opera which was meaningful in this particular context of political events, an opera that was more significant to modern-day Italians than the old plot about the Swedish king. And I present my apologies to the colleagues from the Scandinavian Studies Department. Italy was utterly aware that it was entering the future. The future was America. At the time, any new opera by Verdi was considered a major event in Italy as well as in the wider world. Increasingly, he was perceived as Italy's compositore nazionale, who had taken the place vacated several decades earlier by Rossini, Bellini, and Donizetti. The libretto's author, Antonio Sommer, was known to Italians for his political journalism and for the role he had played in the Venetian Revolution of 1848. He also wrote several popular plays. The Roman premiere of Umballo was an immediate success with audiences and critics alike. The Teatro Apollo was sold out evening after evening and Verdi frequently received more than 30 curtain calls. Ticket prices arose to, rose to almost unprecedented levels. As the Gazzetta Musicale commented, rarely had the public been more excited. Rome's papal government honored Verdi with the crown of golden laurels. Given that since the revolution of 1848, the papal regime confronted Italy's national movement with greatest hostility, these honors for Verdi are interesting in themselves. Performances in Bologna and Turin followed in 1860. Venice, still under the Habsburgs, and Florence scheduled the opera in 1861. Many smaller cities presented the opera before it was staged in Milan and Naples. What is more, Umballo belonged to the relatively few works by Verdi which remained in the repertoire for decades. Italians in their tens of thousands saw the opera within the first few weeks of its life, offering them an opportunity to engage directly in debates about a fictional new world. It was around this time that Verdi became a commodity, also internationally. Umballo reached Lisbon in 1860. In 1861, it was Paris, Berlin, London, and Dublin, St. Petersburg, Barcelona, and Madrid, but also Cuba, then under Spanish rule. All this was certainly not the main reason for the opera's success. Its immediate admission into the international repertoire coincided with an increased interest in American affairs and the escalating conflict between the northern and the southern states of the Republic, which newspapers around the world reported in great detail. In 1862, Constantinople, Malta, and Corfu, Buenos Aires and Rio de Janeiro, Moscow and Odessa scheduled the opera, followed in 1863 by performances in Budapest, Amsterdam, and Lima. In 1864, five years after the Roman premiere, Unballo was presented in Australia, Egypt, and in Vienna. In 1866, in Calcutta, and in Prague, where the German language premiere was duly followed by a performance in Czech. 1869 saw it scheduled in Bogota and in Indonesia. Rarely had an opera conquered the stages of the world in such short a period of time. 
For all of these cities, it was an opera by Italy's and probably the world's most famous living composer, but also an opera about life during the North American colonial period. The fact that Umballo presented a work of fiction was apparently not an obstacle to the impact it had on audiences. Here, the opera's American performances are of particular interest. Starting in 1861 with stagings in New York, in Boston itself, and in Philadelphia. According to the Brooklyn Eagle, a good deal of fun was made of Verdi's depiction of manners and customs of the old Boston Puritans. But hardly any opera had ever attracted so much excitement among the New York audiences. What then did Verdi's America look like? Unballo is not a work which celebrates life in the new world. Through its mix of musical styles, the opera is hard to grasp. Italian opera seria versus French grand opera, buffo characters like the saucy page Oscar, along episodes reminiscent of Jacques Offenbach. There are elements of comedy and tragedy, masking and unmasking, love and hatred, friendship and betrayal, guilt and purity, gaiety and darkness. The general atmosphere is marked by the constant interplay of light and dark, chiaroscuro, modal, con modal contrasts, shifts in harmonic color between major and minor, making it difficult to come to terms with the opera's emotional content. Many of Verdi's contemporaries, as well as later generations of musicologists, have commented on this aspect of Umballo. Although they support the drama's semantic structure, the almost excessive playing on contrasts also creates a sense of confusion among listeners, which in itself is an important aspect of the unfolding tragedy. It is this world of uncertainty which speaks to the audience's experience of modernity. Verdi's description of colonial America certainly does not correspond to a historically informed idea of Puritan New England. There's simply too much worldly life at the palace of the governor, culminating in the must ball in the opera's final act. The governor of Boston, Ricardo, lacks any sense of responsibility <clears throat> towards his responsibility towards his associates and the people of New England, or indeed any regard for his own safety. His sole preoccupation throughout the opera is to seduce Amelia, which seems to betray which means to betray his closest, closest ally and friend, Amelia's husband, Renato. His feelings unfold uncontrolled by reason, and his only thought throughout the opera is to see his lover, Nell'estasi raggiante di Palore. <laughs> Towards the end of the opera, unable to heed Amelia's warnings, he falls on his murderous knife. Then, to the horror of the onlookers, he turns his private affairs public. What Verdi created is not the drama of a political assassination, a historical tableau in the genre of grand opera, but a contemporary display of human passions as in La Traviata or Rigoletto. This morning, the Today program asked us all to talk more about sex. The continuous ma masking and unmasking in the libretto can also read metaphorically. To complicate things further, same-sex desire arguably presents an element in the unfolding of the drama, presumably in conflict with the preconceived ideas about the early modern British colonies with our image of New England's frugality, temperance, and chastity. 
homoerotic elements associated with the original character of Gustav III survived in the interpersonal dynamic between Ricardo and Oscar, who seems constantly jealous of the governor's relationship to Renato. Interpretations of the opera's internal gender dynamic depend on the audience's engagement with Verdi's literary sources, as well as its awareness of opera as a genre which throughout its history has frequently redrawn gender divisions. How are we to explain the apparent contrast between the historical New England and Verdi's fictional canvas? And what did audiences make of it? For Verdi, opera was no longer meant to portray historical realities. As I said at the beginning, it was not Verdi's aim to present America as it really was, but to respond to contemporary associations with modernity and the uncertainty of the future which people associated with the United States. In Verdi's version of the plot, there are no references to specific political events. Therefore, Unballo marks the end of history, the end of history on stage. Historical detail does not matter, perhaps reminiscent of Verdi's beloved Shakespeare, who set one of his most popular plays on the seacoast of Bohemia. Character, not history, fascinated Verdi. That in itself is, of course, of great historical interest. The dehistoricization of music theater marks a crucial change in 19th century display of mentalities and emotions. It is therefore misleading to start an analysis of Verdi's opera with the plot's historical credentials. It distracts us from what the opera is mainly about, modern psychological dispositions and interpersonal relations. Verdi shifted the libretto's action to America because the new world constituted an unknown other, enabling him to depict a social psychological drama without specific historical restrictions. This exercise was facilitated by the fact that in Verdi's day, Italians were interested in the new world as the location of the modern, but at the same time, they did not have a very clear idea as to what life across the Atlantic was like. The future was a foreign country. Educated Italians formed their idea about America's colonial period on the basis of what they knew about Restoration England. The Italian historian of the American War of Independence, Carlo Botta, had informed his readers that most Americans had come to New England, uh, had come from England at the time of the late Stuarts. Walter Scott's historical novels played an important role in the historical imagination. First Italian translations of Scott had appeared since the early 1820s. Several works were known in French translations as well as in abbreviated um, versions. Operas by Carlo Cocca and Rossini, like Maria Stuarda, Elisabetta, and La Donna del Lago, later works by Donizetti, were all based or influenced by the writings of Walter Scott. Many Italians would have been familiar with the libretto for Vincenzo Bellini's last opera, I Puritani, set during the English Civil War and featuring another complicated love story, this time between a Puritan and a Royalist. The libretto's author, Carlo Pepoli, a future mayor of Bologna, was a professor at London's New University. Coincidentally, his inaugural lecture here at UCL was a transnational study of literature. <laughs> Hence, in order to imagine the life of a colonial governor in Boston, Italians used Scott and ideas about the court of Charles II. This background, this background helped audiences to explain the relative grandeur of the opera's first and last acts, which was inspired by the original Swedish setting. By the time Verdi wrote Umballo, there was a tradition of ignoring historical authenticity for the sake of a less specific romantic coloring associated with an imagined past. Umballo's only image of American landscape is a field outside Boston in Act Two the scene of the encounter between Ricardo and Amelia, later joined by Renato and the conspirators. 
The fifth book of Carlo Botta's History of the American War of Independence had started with a beautiful description of Boston's geographical position. The widely read 1856 edition of Botta includes a short section on Massachusetts in the 17th century, mainly focusing on the role of the Puritans and the state's bicameral constitution. Here, colonial Boston appears as an early version of the United States. However, Verdi's field outside Boston retains nothing of Botta's idealized description of the American landscape and its people. Instead, the opera the opera's Disposizione Scenica presents a truly gruesome setting. The positioning of the gallows evokes images of the biblical Golgotha. Arriving at the scene, Amelia, in the words of contemporary critic Filippo Filippi, is overtaken by superstitious terror. Despite this apparent discrepancy between existing Italian descriptions of New England and Verdi's libretto, Unballo was understood as an opera in which Verdi proved his capacity to speak a language of authenticity. What Verdi's America retains from early modern descriptions, depictions of the new world, is the exoticism of place and people, important still for the romantic poet Giacomo Leopardi. A powerful image of American folklore is offered early on in the description of the fortune teller's dwelling. For Milan's Gazzetta Musicale, a supernatural realm, a distressing setting reflected also in the music. Evoking her magical powers, Ulrika uses the bird voice of the hoopoe, a topos in the then fashionable sepulchral literature, for instance, Ugo Foscolo's poem, De Sepolcri. Previously, Verdi had used the bird's magical voice as background for the witches in Macbeth. Again, the opera's commentators praise the effectiveness of the scene, and there's little to suggest that it disturbed the audience's preconceived ideas of American life. I now come to a slightly more complex reading of this scene, and if you have not yet fallen asleep, this is the moment to do so. <laughs> Ulrike's, Ulrike's role in the American drama requires further investigation. She is presented as a modern Sibyl, negotiating between mortals and superhuman powers. She is not referred to as a witch or simply as a fortune teller, even though this is what she actually does, does in the opera. 
although Aubert's and Mercadante's version of the drama, also called Ulrike, is Sibyl, in Verdi's opera, the use of the term is a more conscious reference to classical literature and to narratives about the rise and fall of civilizations. While drafting the libretto for Umbalo, Antonio Sommer was working on his tragedy, Cassandra, concerned with the fall of Troy, perhaps the single most important topos in Europe's literary tradition. Cassandra's prophecies, like those of Ulrika, were faithfully met with disbelief. For the educated audience, Ricardo's Tu Sibilla Que Tutto Sai was a direct allusion to a classical context and possibly to the Sibyl in Virgil's Aeneid, the great epic about the fall of Troy and the origins of Rome, which Sommer had treated in his tragedy. The Sibyl is also referred to in Virgil's false Eclogue. In book six of the Aeneid, the hero follows the instructions of the Sibyl to descend into the underworld, where he meets his former lover, Dido, the queen of Carthago. Like Umbalo, Virgil's story is a narrative about the impossibility of love. But in the same scene, Virgil also expresses his patriotic vision for the future mission of Rome. In the opera, Ricardo's last words before he dies is an exclamation praising the future of the American people. The parallel between the context of the text and the context of the performance seems striking. Like Virgil's epic, Umbalo deals with the complexity of interpersonal relations as well as with the rise and fall of a polity. Sommer and Verdi chose to use these contextual references for an opera which was to coincide with the fulfillment of the Risorgimento's political ambition, nurtured over generations with the help of the nation's literary imagination in which Virgil and Dante's Virgil had played a most prominent role. The design of world history in Virgil's fourth eclogue deeply marked Italians' ideas about the times of history. Magnus ab integro seclorum nascitur ordo, the great succession of centuries. Beneath the unfolding of the dramatic action itself, the contextual references in Verdi's opera create a connection between three key moments of civilization, the origins of Rome, the beginning of modern America, and the future of the Italian nation. Read in this context, Umbalo in Mascara only works as an American opera. If the opera describes the colonization of the new world as a troublesome tradition towards a new age, it explicitly invites the audience to speculate about Italy's own path into the modern world. According to the original set description, the opera includes people of black and white skin, mulattoes, as well as Creoles. This ethnic mix was an important aspect of Verdi's representation of New England, one for which there would have been no place in the original Swedish setting. No matter who Verdi thought his opera's Creoles were, Italians used the term to depict the new world's uncountable otherness. For Italians, Creoles were transnational subjects. They had no real home. The Risorgimento's concept of cultural identity, rooted in ethnicity and kinship, made any mixed heritage suspicious. In the unfolding of Verdi's drama, Renato, Ricardo's assassin, serves to paint a particularly dark picture of life at the governor's court. He is the opera's most tragic and disgraceful character, burdened with a double-edged guilt. Blindly devoted to his master, he distrusts his beloved and ultimately innocent wife. I want blood and you will die, is his only reply to her plea. His inability to trust leads Renato to the betrayal and murder of his friend. For the audience, he plays an utterly discomforting role in the opera, revealing a deep sense of almost slavish loyalty but also of uncontrolled passion. His personality is shattered by the profound dilemmas of human existence. Verdi's Creole certainly does not stand for the re regenerative human force of life in the new world, which some of Latin America's national movements associated with the heritage of ethnic mixing. <laughs> Thank you.
ogni prece vanno mai sangue fuori si è tu morrai beautiful cello solo I dedicate to fellow cellist um, Professor Wendy Davis. Breaking with the Enlightenment paradigm of the new world as an untouched and therefore better place, along the lines of Goethe's America, du hast es besser, the opera does not convey the happy idea of a pre-Adamic paradise, locus of mankind's new beginning. But did Verdi really write an opera about America? If audiences and critics accepted Verdi's music as an authentic description of colonial administration in New England, England, did this correspond to Verdi's own intentions? Let me briefly return to the plot's evolution from the Swedish Gustavo to the Mast Ball in Boston. This is because the changes to the composer's original plan are frequently used to present Verdi as the political victim of vicious censors. As mentioned earlier, Verdi's original idea for the opera was based on the French play by Scribe about the assassination of Gustav III to be performed at the San Carlo in Naples. When negotiations with the censors reached an impasse and Verdi was no longer prepared to make compromises, he sought a new home for his work, the Teatro Apollo in Rome. In the meantime, Verdi also realized that the Kingdom of the Two Sicilies did not yet apply the recent international conventions on authorship. Writing an opera for Naples would have resulted in a loss of royalties. But also, Rome demanded changes to Verdi's opera, prompting then the plot's move to Massachusetts. Much has been written about the transformation of Gustavo Terzo into Umbalo and on the impact of censorship on the content of the opera's final version. What these debates have overlooked is the fact that moving the opera's plot across the Atlantic was significant also in the context of political debates about Italy's own political transition at the time. Given the political context of the opera's performance, the formation of an Italian nation state a work set in America made sense to Italians. Although Verdi paints an altogether rather dark image of America, the move was consistent with Italians' interest in the New World and their engagement with political ideas arriving from across the Atlantic. Unlike the old story about Gustav III, which had been adapted for the stage and set to music many times, the American background of Umballo was of considerable cultural and political significance to Italians in 1859. America was the place to reflect about the psychological disposition of modern societies, almost in the sense of Georg Simmel's description of atomized urban selves. 
the use of masks throughout the opera, not just for the ball at the end, but also during Ricardo's encounter with Ulrika and when Amelia hides from her husband during the second act, was more than a reference to specific courtly forms of entertainment. It stood for the alienating behavioral forms of modern individualized society, which had lost their organic origins. A place where happiness was reduced to schadenfreude. I now return briefly to the end of act two, when Renato discovers that Ricardo's lover is indeed his own wife. Schadenfreude. Giuseppe Mazzini famously despised the United States materialism, the individualism of its people. He loathed the country's very name. Verdi shows us a very similar America. Were there alternatives to moving the plot across the Atlantic? Initially, Verdi and Sommer had proposed to set the opera in Pomerania. However, since 1648, much of Pomerania belonged to Sweden, far too close to the original plot. But was regicide really the censor's main concern? Politics merely formed the background to the actual psychological drama between the opera's protagonists. Arguably, moving the plot to America permitted an even more significant political reading of the libretto, 
playing on possible connections between the American War of Independence and a future Italian War of Independence. There must have been other non-political motives why an American opera was more acceptable to the censors than a plot set in Europe. Unballo's moral, or rather immoral, content was bound to preoccupy the censors. A story revolving around adultery and guilty love, where the king, in the final version turned governor, desires and assaults the wife of his best friend and secretary. One of the suggestions of the Neapolitan censors was indeed for Amelia to become Renato's sister, thus destroying the adulterous triangle. While Verdi resisted this intervention of the Bourbon censors, the version devised for Rome was itself heavily trimmed. But in this case, Verdi accepted a compromise. Rome did not object to the triangular love relationship as such, but considered it inappropriate for such a relationship to take place in the old world in which the Catholic Church still determined moral conduct. They simply insisted on having this unseemly triangle removed across the Atlantic where Protestantism undermined religious morality. The work's depiction of immorality could not be tolerated within a European setting, but it seemed to fit with the census idea of a foreign and Protestant American context. <coughs> Finally, if we were to believe that the change of locale was imposed upon Verdi against his own will, we still have to ask why he never considered returning to the plot's original Swedish version later on, as modern stage directors frequently do. As the examples of I Lombardi, Rigoletto, La Traviata, and Le Vepre Sicilienne demonstrate, Verdi often reworked existing operas in order to meet specific requirements of the census. He usually did not hesitate returning to the original plot later on. However, he never did so for Unvalo. He never adapted the American version to the original Swedish setting. Italy's most influential critic at the time claimed that the drama and its effects were enhanced by the lack of historical background because America had no history. He concludes that with Unballo, Verdi ha compreso il suo tempo, that he had understood his time. A political reading of the different versions of the libretto, which tries to present Verdi as the censor's victim, is misleading and only contributes to the many political myths created around the composer during his lifetime and ever since. The opera's American setting came to form a crucial aspect of its worldwide success. Soon after the premiere, the world stage was itself marked by political changes, which created an important new context for the opera's impact on audiences. One of the first Americans to see the opera was president-elect Abraham Lincoln. However, during the tense political climate in the weeks leading up to the Civil War, the opera's libretto alarmed New York's security forces. As the New York Herald reports, the police received notice of a plot to kill Lincoln to coincide with the opera's onstage murder of the governor. Lincoln and his wife were safely escorted away before the final scene. In light of later events, this certainly seems significant. Did Americans remember the incident when Lincoln was shot in a theater four years later? Shortly after the opera's New York premiere, the American Civil War broke out. For the first time, political events from across the Atlantic were discussed on the front pages of Italian newspapers. The breakup of the American Union was seen in close connection with Italy's own unification and its unfolding civil war in the South. Italian unification was not a happy event throughout, and in the South, where the process probably counted more losers than winners. Elsewhere, the deposition of the pontiff was perceived as a symbolic patricide. The trauma associated with unification echoed the references to fraternal war on the way to freedom in Virgil's aforementioned fourth eclogue. 
Was the Italian Union going to survive after the nation's founder, Count Camillo Cavour, had unexpectedly died just weeks after the Kingdom of Italy had been declared? Both supporters and opponents of unification drew close connections between the events at home and the outbreak of civil war across the Atlantic. Verdi's opera helped to negotiate this relationship. At the height of success of Verdi's new opera, the composer's wife, the soprano Giuseppina Streponi, passed a book from her library to a friend and member of the Italian parliament. It was a copy of Harriet Beecher Stowe's famous novel, Uncle Tom's Cabin, published in Boston in 1852. The novel circulated widely in Italy and was not unrelated to the performance history of Umbalo in Maschera. As a matter of fact, the opera's Roman premiere coincided with the staging of Giuseppe Rota's ballet Bianchi e Neri, a hugely successful adaptation of Uncle Tom's Cabin for the ballet stage, premiered at La Scala in 1853 and then repeatedly touring the entire peninsula it became the most successful ballet in the history of Italian dance, for decades staged in connection with performances of Umbalo in Maschera. Reviews of the ballet frequently related the story of Uncle Tom to the ongoing civil war in the United States. Italians were deeply unsettled by what they discovered about the American slave economy. Although Verdi's Umbalo is not explicitly centered on issues of race, in Act One, the judge makes an explicitly pejorative comment on Ulrika's racial identity, describing her as del mondo sangue de negri, of the foul blood of the Negroes. Contemporary commentators notice the wording of this phrase. It is one of the few instances where Filippo Filippi, in his review for the Gazzetta Musicale, quotes directly from the libretto, highlighting the passage in italics. The combination of Umbalo with Uncle Tom made perfect sense, and for the audience, it transformed the theatrical experience into an evening on an American theme. The America Verdi and Bichasto depicted was not a happy place. In my lecture, I deconstructed the idea that Verdi was the victim of vicious old regime censors, arguing instead that the move of his opera's plot from Sweden to America closely met the composer's dramatic objectives. By making this argument, I also contribute to the destruction of the many myths around Verdi. My argument pulls in the same direction as the work of other revisionist Verdi scholars, some of whom are in this room tonight. These scholars dismantled the myth of Verdi as the bard of the Risorgimento, especially the supposedly national meaning of Verdi's opera Nabucco, the idea that Italy's national revolution had sparked off at the opera house in 1842 to the tunes of the Hebrew slaves on the rivers of Babylon. What we are doing here is the destruction of delightful patriotic narratives about Verdi and about the Risorgimento. Most teleological narratives of nation-states depend on powerful myths and on enemies which forge the nation together. Through my analysis of Verdi's America, I hope to have demonstrated that at the time of unification, imagining the future, imagining modernity, was not necessarily a rosy prospect for Italians. Thinking along those lines makes it more difficult for us, modern historians, to feel at home in 19th century Italy. It complicates our idea of the Risorgimento. In my lecture, I have argued that the history of opera can be a profoundly political history, that it contributes to our understanding of political and social processes. I therefore reject the distinctions arbitrarily drawn between political, intellectual, and cultural history. Too often such distinctions only serve to protect our own historiographical territory from foreign contamination. All too rigorous divisions between political history and cultural history, between culture and politics, amount to nothing more than a depoliticized view of culture which simply is not at the order of the day. Abraham Lincoln, 
understood this when he claimed that the American Civil War was also Harriet Beecher Stowe's war. With Umbalo and Mascara, Verdi challenged simplistic hopes that the new world would necessarily be a better world. In doing so, he made a major contribution to contemporary debates about the experience of changing times, times in which the United States continued to play a pivotal and often troubling role. Ah, I'm a, you're a... 